Let's get going. Um, spent enough time on my stuff, so let's get in the Word and, and let's see Jesus. I'm going to title tonight, The Cross Marks the Spot. Of course, we're working off of that old British statement, the X marks the spot, that old British naval statement that was sort of borrowed from pirateering, the old, the old uh, map that has the little dots on it. And then the X that shows you where the treasure's buried, that's sort of become a Hollywood cliche. Um, and so I just kind of borrow that cliche and, ins- and, and, and instead put the cross there and let's just imagine um, that picture in your mind about the X that marks the spot. The cross marks the spot of many things. I'm going to get into to, uh, what I mean tonight is I'm not trying each week to come up with something clever on the cross. In fact, I didn't have anything for this week until this morning. And I was fully prepared to come in tonight with, um, I knew I would have something, but I was fully prepared to move away from the the theme of the cross and just onto something else. Like, I got a thousand things we can preach and teach, but they weren't the the cross. It wasn't focused on that moment. And so on the morning um, prayer time slash walk, it was just hearing that sound and trying to find again which flag stays flying the highest and so this thought of of the cross marks the spot of a lot of things but it marks the spot where we dwell because we go meet christ at that cross and then of course we're resurrected but that cross has a particular placement in the bible and and i want to get into that and it even has a geographical placement it has a spot where it occurs versus a spot where it doesn't occur. And that's important. So to lead me into that before we read any scripture, I just want you to, I want to address a little thought. Um, We've done a lot over the last few weeks on the cross as it relates to our death, both our physical death, our spiritual death, our death to stuff, our death to ideas, our death to our old man. And we've talked about how we're raised in a newness of life. Um, Jesus was, the Bible says, made conformable unto death, which means that Christ was fashioned as a man, but then conformed into the understanding of what kind of death he was going to die. Um, I think that's part of the Gethsemane experience where Jesus is praying as a father, here's this cup. And if it's your will, I'll drink this cup. But if it's not your will, let this cup pass from me. Well, we don't ever see Jesus pick up an actual cup between there and the cross. So we, the cup was a sort of a, uh, an allegory for that which he was about to take into himself. And the cross becomes the cup. He drinks deeply of that cup and takes into him the death. Being made conformable to the death is not Jesus having to come to, to terms with the fact that he's going to die. It's Jesus having to conform himself to the kind of death he has to experience. And so being made conformable to death is not being willing to die. It's just accepting the type of death that that we walk into as our reality. It's us entering into Christ's death where we die as a submission, not in violent defense of ourselves. And so think of it in these terms. Peter told Jesus, I'm not going to let you go to the cross and die. I'm not going to let them kill you. If they kill you, they're going to kill me too. Remember that? Peter doesn't hang on the cross next to Jesus. So what happened? Peter goes into the garden with Jesus. The soldiers come to arrest Jesus. Peter pulls his sword to attack the soldiers. Now, what do you expect is going to happen if you attack soldiers with a sword? They're going to kill you. 
And when Peter swings that sword and hits one of the soldier, one of the servants on the side of the head and takes off a chunk of his ear, I would imagine they, they swing on Peter about to destroy. Jesus stops Peter and I think pulls him away. There's not this much drama in the story because Jesus just goes, put your sword up. It's kind of hard to believe that he swings his sword, blood's flying, and Jesus just goes, put your sword up. And Peter just calms down, puts it away. There's probably a pretty severe reaction. Jesus might have even grabbed Peter and pulled him off to the side, maybe into his ear. He says to him, put your sword up. You live by this, you're going to die by this. Permit this, Peter. And if you consider the fact that a few hours ago, Peter said, they're going to kill you, they're going to kill me. I'll die with you. Don't cut Peter down. He is willing to die. You don't swing a sword at a soldier in the garden if you're not willing to die. Peter's not a coward. Peter's just wrong about what being made conformable to Christ's death is. Because Peter's willing to die in defense of Jesus while swinging a sword. But it takes a real understanding of what Jesus does for us at the cross for us to be willing to die without picking up our sword. And that's the part that Peter doesn't yet have. I think we've substituted the willingness to die with being conformable to Christ's death in the American church. Well, I'm willing to die for what matters. And I'll be, I'll, I'm willing to die in defense of my family. And I'm willing to die in defense of my country. And we think the noblest death is the man willing to die. And that an ignoble death is a man who is a coward, who doesn't wish to die. And I don't think the noble death is the man willing to die at the hand of violence. The noble death in Christ was being made conformable to a death you could have avoided. But you refuse to pick up the weaponry of your accusers in order to avoid your death. And so by refusal to pick up the weapons of your accusers, you die at the hands of your accusers. And you had the power to stop it. That's not cowardice. That's Calvary. And that, I think, is a misunderstanding on our part of what the cross is doing. It's bringing us into the conformability of his death where we die as Christ, where Christ died to, what are we dying to? We're dying to our rights and our needs to fight back, to defend the indefensible, to use the same weaponry on our enemy that our enemy uses on us. And only when we get to that point are we really where Peter is. Lord, I'll die with you. And church tradition tells us that in the mid-60s AD, Peter died. And the early church fathers wrote that Peter died crucified upside down. Because once he was convicted to death to be put on a cross, the early church fathers wrote that Peter requested to be crucified upside down. He said, for I'm not worthy to be crucified in the same manner as my Lord. Now, whether that happened that way or not, we can't be for sure, but Peter dies in the same manner as Jesus and doesn't swing the sword to get there. So it took a whole generation for Peter to learn that lesson, but he did learn it indeed. Let me start with this thought today. Where, where is the crucifixion? Where the crucifixion occurred is actually what I meant to say there. Where the crucifixion occurred gives us a clue as to why the crucifixion occurred. So imagine, underline where, underline why, underline what. Where it occurred gives us a clue as to why it occurred, which leads us to what it means for those who find it. If we find the X, find the cross, and that's our journey tonight. 
If we find the cross that marks the spot, it's at that spot that we learn something about the death of Christ and subsequently our death. So where it happens gives us a clue as to why it happens. And let me just get a couple of them out of the way. One, we know that it happens at a place called Golgotha. You could do a good sermon on what it means to die at Golgotha. Golgotha, um, a compound, many believe, of two old words, Goliath of Gath, and Hebrew tradition says that the, the head of Goliath, where David cut off Goliath's head, that the head of Goliath was buried on a hill called Golgotha, Goliath of Gath, and that Jesus then goes to Golgotha and is crucified at Golgotha. And a great sermon you can pre you could preach out of that is that by dying on that hill, Jesus conquers the place of the skull. Christ becomes the victor, the, new, the David 2.0. He defeats your giant. He goes to the cross to beat up whatever giant is trying to beat you up. Great sermon. Not, not, uh, in a, not an inappropriate place to land at all, I don't think, with Golgotha. It's something you can do with it. So geographically, you could preach Golgotha. You could preach the hill because the Bible repeats it over and again that he dies on the hill. He dies on a hill. And he doesn't die in a valley. And there's a reason for that. Because the cross becomes the place that we ascend up, not the place that we go down. That we, our, our call to follow Jesus with our cross is an ascent upward into his goodness, into his grace, into his provision. So that whatever we pick up and heft in our lives, whether it's our future death or whether it's our burden, whether it's our physical sickness, whether it's whatever it is we carry, whether it's up here, it's down here, it's on, it's on our back. Whatever it is, we pick it up and we go uphill with it as a way of honoring our God so that our death isn't some downward spiral into the darkest valley, but an ascent up into the clouds, an ascent up into the goodness of God. And so the fact that the cross happens on a hill becomes significant. But I want to do better than that. I want to give you some geography, and I want to use the Bible. Hebrews 13, 8. What we're going to do tonight is we're actually going to work through about half of this chapter, and I want to do it a little bit exegetical style where we just work some of the verses as we work our way in. And there's, there's a theme that the author of Hebrews is trying to land on as he or she finishes the writing of this book. I say this because we're not at all positive about who wrote the book of Hebrews. And we've speculated about a thousand people, but that's for another night. Verse eight, one of the most famous verses in the New Testament. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's top 10 most famous verses in the New Testament. Uh, it gets quoted all the time. Not a lot of people realize it's Hebrews 13, eight, but when we say Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, this is where it is in the Bible. And this is its lone spot, by the way. Notice it's not God that's declared to be the same yesterday, today, and forever. I'm not insinuating God is not the same, but it's not biblical to say God is the same. What we see is that Jesus Christ shows us an image of the Father that is universal and never changes. So whatever you saw in Jesus in Matthew, and then you see in resurrected Jesus in Acts, and then you see through the message of Paul in Ephesians and Corinthians, that's the same Jesus in this room. That's the same Jesus in 10,000 years, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And because of that, do not be carried about with various 
and strange doctrines. Already at the midpoint of the first century, we were starting to get various and strange doctrines in regards to Jesus. And one of the most famous that would last nearly 200 years in the church was Jesus wasn't a real person. He didn't have a real body. Therefore, this whole crucifixion, resurrection stuff's made up. This is a fantasy. And so early on, the church has to start to combat that by eyewitness testimony and go, you can say he wasn't real. I saw him. It's why John opens his little letter with, we touched him. We heard him. We saw him. He was real. And so forget the various and strange doctrines. Instead, land here. It is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have profited those who've been, not profited those who've been occupied by them. And so you can choose, and, and, and the author here chooses to juxtapose grace with natural stuff like food and drink because in a Hebrew culture, food and drink was the, the mark of whether you were a real Jew or not. Um, we don't have those such restrictions in Christianity, but they had them in Judaism. And so the author says, look, Jesus Christ the same Jesus we walked with is the same Jesus today. It'll be the same Jesus tomorrow. What I want you to establish yourself in is the grace of God, the goodness of God, the favor of God, the love of God versus all these intangibles and stuff you can touch and fight about. And this is a message that needs re-preached in the church over and over again. Is Listen, folks, your hearts today can be established in God's goodness and God's grace and God's love for you, or your heart can be established in all the stuff you do. You, you get to choose that. By the way, choose wisely. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So go all the way back to Jesus and figure out which one he was impressed with. And that's the one you ought to be impressed with. And therefore, the message can become grace, my heart established, not the other things. Verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin, are burned outside the camp. I know we're moving quickly. I'm going to read this through and we're going to talk about it. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. I want to, I want to explain something before we really dig into the meat of that argument. Inside the tabernacle of Moses, all of the accoutrements of the tabernacle, not totally relevant for our understanding of this lesson, but all of them are vital. They all hold some sort of spiritual meaning. And in the, in the outer courtyard of the tabernacle is the brazen altar. And the brazen altar is the place where they would take the meat from the sacrifice, where there's a lamb, a goat, a bull, a pigeon, a turtle dove, a and they would bring its body in and put it on the altar and they would offer it up as a sacrifice to God, but they would actually do the killing. They would do the slaughter, the cleaning of it outside the camp. And so you would gut it, for lack of a better term, outside, and then bring the meat in and lay it on the altar before God. And then whenever it was fully cooked, your sacrifice was finished. And your, your, your sacrifice wasn't finished until it was well done. Lack of, I mean... Pardon the pun, that's, that's the way it was. It had to be a finished work for you to be finished. And it was a crime in God's economy to take the meat off the altar before it was finished. 
And there's a story in the Old Testament about some priests who did that and got themselves in big trouble because it's a type and shadow of us taking Jesus off the cross before the work is finished so that people don't get to see how the work is finished. And if you don't get to see how the work is finished, your heart's not going to be established in grace. Your heart's going to be established in what you do right and what you do wrong. And so it's always a matter of trying to watch how the work got finished. Now, the author says we have an altar that's different from that altar. He goes, Our alt the bodies of those animals... Their blood was brought in by the high priest, but their bodies were burned outside the camp. So what would happen is they would burn the waste on a fire outside the camp, not the brazen altar, on a dumpster fire. And a type of New Testament Gehenna. Okay, because when you get to the New Testament, there's Gehenna, which gets mistranslated as hell. And what happens in Gehenna is it's a trash heap right outside of Jerusalem where dead bodies and refuse and waste went and there was a fire that burned forever and the worm died not. That's how the book of Isaiah ends. He goes, there's a spot where stuff burns and the worm lasts forever and doesn't die. And then a thousand years later, that got turned into a spiritual place called hell in the heart of the earth where people burn forever and forever. But that's my, my apologetics for whether hell is the place you think it is or not could be safe for another sermon. But outside the camp, they burn up the waste and the excess. They bring the blood in and they pour the blood out on the altar. And the blood then becomes the sacrifice that people see. And this is why Christians connect the blood with the redemption of their sins. Because you could see the blood on the altar. And therefore, the blood of Christ becomes the redemption that frees you from condemnation. But you took everything else outside. The author wants to put Jesus there too. Therefore, Jesus... So that he might sanctify, that set us aside. So that we might be set aside, Jesus, with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So the author of Hebrews goes, hey, I've heard Jesus died on a hill outside of Jerusalem. Guess what? So did the animals in the Old Testament. They would die and suffer. And we romanticize their death because we saw the meat on the altar and the blood on the altar. But in reality, the screaming of their death happened out there. He said, so Jesus goes outside of the city. He goes outside of Jerusalem and he suffers and he dies outside the camp. And then here's the ultimate connection. Therefore, let's go forth to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. And so the author says, so if we're going to accept Jesus, we're going to have to go outside of something. We're going to have to go outside of our camp. We're going to go have to go outside of our house. We're going to have to go outside of something. We have to leave where we are to go to where he is because he's there. And therefore, if I'm going to join together with him, I got to mark the spot where he dies and I have to go die there as well. And we know because this whole thing's allegory, we know he's not telling us that the only way to come to Christ is to go to a spot outside of natural Jerusalem. But much deeper than that, the only way to go to Christ is to go to Christ's place of death. And in doing so, you're going to have to leave something. You're going to have to go out of one place and go into another place because that's the spot of the cross. Peter would say it this way in 1 Peter 4.14. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. If you're reproached for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Simple. On their part, he's blasphemed. On your part, he's glorified. The people that reproach you are blaspheming God, but, he, but God's being glorified by you suffering that reproach. N let none of you suffer 
as a murderer, as a thief, as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. We were, most of us were doing okay. As long as this first part was the part that we had to leave alone, we were doing okay. Don't be a murderer, check. Don't be a thief, check. Don't be an evildoer, eh, to the best of our ability. Or as a busybody in other people's matters, I go, okay, you went too far, Peter. You were doing fine. Those were crimes committed by other people, but then you had to throw in the busybody part. I do think it's interesting that they get easier to commit as Peter goes along. <laughs> Probably none of us have actually killed someone. But by the time you get down to busybody in other people's matters, you're like, well, okay. So that's how we're going to play this game? I mean, murderers and busybodies are in the same boat? And if that's the case, then we're all in trouble. So basically, Peter says, listen, you're going to suffer as something, but don't let it be this garbage. All right? Don't, don't let it be being mocked because you're this. And how many have seen that Christianity gets mocked? Unfortunately, a lot of times, not because, not because it turns the other cheek or it's kind or it's gentle, although that, that wave is shifting as well, but mocked a lot of times because it's full of this stuff. And Peter says, that's to our shame. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let him glorify God in this matter. And so Peter, by the end of his life, is writing saying, listen, there's a lot of reasons people are going to mock you. Don't let it be because you actually did something dumb. Let it be because you follow Jesus. And realize that if you're suffering because you follow Jesus, you're in good company. That you're, that's, that's all right. That's the place to be. So put those thoughts together. The cross exists outside the camp, away from the world as we know it. It's, a, it's our world we're stepping out of to go out and meet him. The cross marks the spot where I died. And where is that? It's never inside my old world. It always takes me outside my world. To meet Jesus at the cross means we are joining with an outsider, a voluntary exile, where suffering is often part of the experience. Please hone in on my phrase, a voluntary exile. By going outside of the camp, the outsiders, if you lived or dwelled outside the camp, it meant you weren't part of the camp. To go outside the camp to die, you weren't even worthy to die amongst the people that were supposed to be your kin, that were supposed to be your family. To go outside the camp was to go outside as a voluntary exile, which means that ours is not to make a world more comfortable for Christians. Rejoice when there's ease, but realize that the cross is the mark of our identity and our identity knows very little of ease. Let me focus on that thought for a moment. Our job, ours, is not to make the world more comfortable for Christians. I think that modern Christianity kind of feels like it has a social impetus and our societal impetus is to make America a Christian nation, to make our local government a Christian government, to make our schools Christian, and whatever means we have to do to get to that end where the, where the last faith standing is Christianity, I don't think it's birthed oftentimes in evangelism. I think it's birthed in the idea that we don't want to be oppressed and we don't want to be outsiders and we don't want to be the ugly duckling and we don't want to be odd. And we want our rights and our authority and to whatever to be on par with anyone else's. And listen, um, I'm all for liberty and all for, for rights and glad to have them. In fact, I love where there's ease. <laughs> Who doesn't? But the object of Christianity is not to make sure that I create a world more comfortable for my brothers and sisters in Christ, 
but to realize that when I come to follow Jesus, I left the land of comfort to go die with him outside the camp. I think it's fascinating that in all the beautiful things Hebrews does, when it gets to the very end of the book, it drops the bombshell on its audience. Because this whole book has been Jesus is better than Moses, Jesus is better than angels, Jesus is better than the temple, Jesus is better than Jerusalem, Jesus is better than the law. And it gets to the very end and it goes, guess what else he's better than? Everything you can come up with. So much so that if you're going to join together with him, you're going to have to leave everything else. And you're going to have to step outside the camp that you're happy in, that you're at ease in, that you're at peace in. You're going to have to go out here to the outside. And that from the day you do that on, you might suffer. And that that is what you signed up for. You signed up to follow the suffering Savior. And if suffering is part of it, then it be part of it. Now, may it never be suffering by the hands of other believers. God forbid that we be the source of persecution for fellow believers. And we have for too long. Because we don't agree with them. We don't think their lifestyle's right. We don't think they're dressing right. We don't think their doctrine's right. We don't like their Bible translation. We disagree with their baptism code. We don't think they worship properly. We don't like the way they preach. We think their buildings are wrong. We don't like the, the, the stance they take politically. And so we oppress our, our fellow believers. And we get in fights. And we split off into other denominations. And we don't like each other. If we are the source of the suffering, God forbid... That should be worked against by every believer in the body of Christ, actively. So, yes, try to make your fellow brother's life better. Try to bring a little ease to your brothers and sisters by not being so judgmental, by not being hateful. You know, try out the fruit of the Spirit. And if you quote the fruit of the Spirit and that's too woke for people, then it's probably time to redefine woke. Because you know, like we live in a world where gentleness and peace in the church community has become something that makes you soft. And yet, there it is in Galatians 5, as fruits of the Spirit. Like literally, gentleness and peace are fruits of the Spirit. So if the Spirit was actually doing anything, you'd become more gentle, not less gentle. And we've got this idea that if you're gentle then you've sold out and you've got to be hard and harsh and rough and mean. And if we are the source of suffering and persecution inside the church, God forbid, we have repentance to do. But if we think that outside the camps of the world's way of thinking and outside the camps of what society thinks is right, if we think we can survive as followers of Christ and not take some kind of suffering from that system then we don't understand what it means to follow Jesus. And so not only should we not be looking for a life of ease, we shouldn't be looking for a life in which we find approval by the systems of this world. And I know that is a line that we have to work to walk. We have to find out what it means. I don't think we would be that confused if we were listening first, foremost, and only to the voice of the Spirit. But a lot of times we're listening to everything else. We're listening to social media and television media. We're listening to our friends. We're listening to the governments. We're listening to the world. And then we're bringing all that information and we're going in our prayer closet. And we're going, Lord, just show me the truth. And we got so much garbage up here and we find ourselves leaning one way or the other to the garbage and then calling it the Holy Ghost. Well, that's the one I agree with the most. That must be the Spirit. 
And I think we should start over. <laughs> so go back to a place, and this is why, and I'm, 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 I'm preaching this and harping this over and over again, it is why we need a return to some of the Christian disciplines. Silence, meditation, and prayer. We need it, and we need it in this hour like we've never needed it before. Because without silence, meditation, and prayer, we're going to have somebody in our ear all the time. And they're going to be saying a lot of stuff, and we're going to like some of it, and we're going to hate some of it, and we're going to get confused, and we're going to get mad, and we're going to space out, or we're going to grab hold of information, we're going to call it the Holy Spirit. And if we could start from a place of hearing Him first and realize that when we are hearing Him best, please hear this, when we are hearing Him best, we're going to hear Him outside the camp. Because the cross marks the spot. So I want to go to where Jesus is. Where is Jesus? Outside the camp. Oh, you mean he's outside the, the right? No. He's outside the camp. Oh, you mean he's outside the left? No. He's outside the camp. You're in camps. You just got a right camp, a left camp, middle camp, side camp, a little bit of this camp, a little bit of that camp. Systems of the world. He's outside of that. Go outside of that. That's where you find the cross. And there, there will be its own version of suffering. Because there's going to have to be stuff you lay down. There's going to have to be stuff you put behind you. And there'll be a version of suffering that comes with it. So our world, is our job is not to make it better or to make it more comfortable. Our job is to live out the kingdom of God that's alive inside of us. And living out the kingdom of God will love like Jesus loved. And if you think that will keep you safe, reread the Gospels. Because loving like Jesus will love will get you kicked outside the camp and they're going to run... Spikes to your hands and feet. <laughs> Jesus, that's loving like Jesus. So no, my, my, my prophecy is not that our ultimate destination is that we're going to be physically killed for the gospel's sake. I, hope, I don't hope that on anyone. But it's an understanding that Hebrews took a literal moment where Jesus died outside of Jerusalem and he spiritualized it. And he said, guess where you're going to die? Outside of wherever it is you're comfortable. Outside of whatever it is is home. Outside of whatever comes first. It's going to not come first anymore. Not when you meet Jesus. You're going to have to step outside of what was you to go meet him there. And when you meet him there, this will never be comfy again. Now, I didn't say you won't still live here. You won't still be a citizen. You won't still be a person within the structure. And I won't say that you shouldn't pray for it. And I won't say you shouldn't try to make the world a better place and love the unloved. Of course you should. It's the kingdom of God living inside of you. But it's not your first allegiance anymore. You died outside the camp. You died outside of that structure. If you died outside of it, it means you died to it. And that was the reason why we died outside of that place. So, back to Hebrews 13. The verse that we ended on said, Therefore, let's go forth to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. Look at the next verse. For here, we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Why are we going outside the camp? He answers the question. Why go outside the camp? Because you don't have a place here that you call your permanent home. You have no continuing city. Who has no continuing city? In the world, what kind of people have no continuing city? Strangers, vagabonds, exiles, people who do not have a home. And so the author of Hebrews concludes with, if you go meet him outside the camp, you'll realize that you're never going to be at home again inside the camp. You've met your death outside of the camp. And all of the subsequent deaths we talk about where we meet the end of something in our spiritual walk happens when we walk outside of the things that have defined us. I challenge you to take steps outside of the things that are the most comfortable, to take steps outside of the things that define us. 
I don't have even one to list off for you because I don't know what yours individually is. I don't know what systems and what structures have set us at ease as a people the most. And sometimes stepping outside of that is the only way to really find where we're supposed to be in Him because we're a people that doesn't have a permanent structure. We're a people that doesn't have a place. We're a people that look like what Peter said, 1 Peter chapter 1. Look at how he opens that same letter we talked about a minute ago where we read from the end. Look at the beginning. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. These are, these are lands in the eastern part of the Roman Empire. Dispersion from the word diaspora. Those who are scattered and Pilgrims are the same as exiles. To the exiles scattered in the eastern part of the Roman Empire, you exiles who don't have a home, you don't have a place to call your own, I'm writing to you. And you know what what you are? You're actually elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. You're sanctified in the Holy Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Here's a good fun challenge. Go home and reread 1 Peter. And when you get to the next verse, realize that every word you're reading is being written to a people without a home, without a land to call their own, without a pillow to lay their own head on. They're dispersed in a world that is not theirs. And they've identified with Christ outside the camp. And they get this letter from Peter. And they go, oh, this is, this is gold. This is from the chief exile. This is from one of the biggest cast outs in the world. This guy has nowhere to call home. And he calls me brother. And yes, they're at home in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. They got houses there. They got jobs there. But that's not them. What they really are pilgrims because we don't have a permanent place. We are a people who, because the cross marks our spot, our spot can never be first and foremost to someone else. 13, 15, 16 Hebrews, the next two. Therefore, and I love the therefores of the text because therefore points back. Therefore, what's it there for? It's therefore, it's here because of what you just read. And in light of what you just read, that you don't have a continuing city, that you died outside the camp, then let us continually offer our own kind of sacrifice. Here's the, the narrative irony. They have a sacrifice. They got offered on altars. You follow the sacrifice that's been offered on a different altar. Theirs died outside the camp. Yours died outside the camp. So what do you get to offer? Jesus already offered for you. So what do you have to offer? And what do you have to offer? Continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of your lips. Give thanks to his name. I, I do like this. The phrase give thanks is actually the Greek word homologios. Homologios is the phrase same word. We often translate that word confession. Remember 1 John 1, 9. If anyone sin, and then he confess. If you confess, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Say the same thing as what he says about your sin. Give thanks is say the same thing over and over about his name. That's the fruit of our lips. But do not forget, I like this last verse. Do not forget to do good and to share. That's the sacrifice with which God is well pleased. So at the end of the day, what do us vagabonds have? We have our mouths. We praise our God by saying the same thing God says about us. We don't have a continuing city. 
In the midst of not having a continuing city, we do good. And we do it because, not because we hope to go to heaven. We do it because we've already been there. Because, honestly, our heaven is that place where the cross marks the spot. That's the place outside the camp. Paul said it this way, and I land with Paul. Philippians 3.20. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look, that's, that's it. Where, where am I a citizen first? In the heavenlies. Where's my first loyalty lie? To my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All my other allegiances have got to take a back seat. Why? Because the cross marks the spot of my death. See, I'm not saying to you the cross marks the spot you're going to die someday. I mean, in a spiritual sense, the cross marks the spot that you died. And where is that? Outside the camp. Who lives outside the camp? Strangers, vagabonds and exiles. Welcome to the family. Out there, we are a people who have our mouths to praise him with and we have our lives to love our neighbor with. We continuously offer the sacrifice of praise to God, but we also continuously offer the love to our neighbor. And in doing so, we bring honor to where the cross marks the spot in our life. So yes, it's geographic, but only in one sense. In the rest, it's spiritually geographic. It's a spiritual location. When, I'm being made, when Jesus is made conformable to his death, I'm being made conformable into his death by meeting the cross in that place. In a nutshell, when I come to Jesus, I walk out of the comfort of whatever else it is that I am. When I come to Jesus and I meet him in his death, I die. When I die, I die outside of the things that used to define me. If I died outside of the things that used to define me, I'm now taking up residence in him. And where does he live? He's in exile outside the camp with no continuing city. And that's where I live. And I have a nation and I have a street and I have a house and I have an address and I have a checking account. <laughs> but I'm not a citizen first and foremost to any of those things. None of them can define me. And the great challenge, the great challenge in this world was to will to be to have your heart established in eating food and drink versus grace. And don't think this is diet. Food and drink's the natural. Grace is the supernatural. And the challenge in Hebrews 13 is don't let your first citizenship be in the natural. Let your citizenship be in the grace of God. And that's why Paul says in Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. What's he mean? It's the same thing he said, that the author says in Hebrews. It's not meat and drink. Meat and drink, what's that? It's not the stuff you can consume that make you human. That's not the kingdom. The kingdom is the stuff you can't put your hands on. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Thus, when you die with him at where the cross marks the spot of your death, it isn't going to be about the natural. It's going to be about the supernatural. And I am one who believes that the supernatural will invade your natural. That as you accept your heart established in the grace of God, it will invade how you view the natural. It's why the old timers used to say, this world doesn't feel like home to me. I know what they mean. Because as you mark the spot of where you're following Jesus, it does start to feel less like home to you. Or at least the systems of the world start to feel less familiar to you. And as you let go of them, they become difficult to grab back a hold of because your heart is no longer established in what you make, where you live, what you do, who you know, what you consume, what you produce. 
your heart begins to be established in his grace outside the camp where your identity is with Christ. Give us that, Father. That's what, that's what we're looking for. That's what we're all come to follow Jesus for. Or at least it's why we keep following Jesus. At least I think so. Unless we, get, unless we have a Christianity of, I'm going to go to one place when I die, but I don't want to go to the other place when I die, and that's this whole thing. We go one place or we go to the other place. And so then it doesn't matter how you follow Jesus. It just matters how you die, right? But, but he said, I've come that you might have life. And you might have more abundant. Where do you find that life? The spot of his death. Go to the spot of his death. Find his life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for tonight for this word. And I thank you for this consumption in me today. This, this consuming fire over this word that stirred for hours of just wanting somehow, some way to know that I can identify with the death outside the camp. I'm, I'm praying, Father, for an awareness for myself tonight and for anyone else who will agree with this prayer, who makes it their own, an awareness of the spot of my death in Christ. And what that means to me is that it be outside of the things that I might have called familiar or have called home and realize that the spot of the cross is the place where exiles live. And I'm okay with that. And that going outside of that spot to find where Jesus is, is not me walking around, eschewing the world, plugging my ears so I don't hear anything. No, it's living as an exile in the world, but realizing that I'm not of it. And help us as we discover that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.